I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So my next guest is Spanish, but sitting in the U.S., which is funny because I'm American and sitting in Spain recording this conversation. But I want to introduce Isidro Mencos, who was born and raised in Barcelona, Spain, where she spent her 20s experimenting with the new freedoms afforded by the end of the Franco dictatorship in the 70s. And as she describes it, bouncing from man to man and job to job, which kind of sounds like a great way to spend your 20s. But considering the context, that was probably quite freeing and different. So while there, she freelanced for prestigious publishing houses, traveled the world as a tour leader, and worked for the Olympic Committee. So very bohemian. Then in 1992, she moved to the U.S. to study a Ph.D. in Spanish and Latin American contemporary literature at the University of California, Berkeley because it sounded bohemian, and Isidra had a friend who had lived in the city. She's always lived by following her gut, but it doesn't end there. As she describes it, her PhD years were happy and fruitful, and she ended up teaching at UC Berkeley for 12 years, which if you know anything about American universities, it's a pretty prestigious place to be. She taught Spanish language, literature, culture, and creative writing, as well as winning two teaching awards. And as she did that, she also developed a business as a freelance writer and editor for Spanish-speaking media in the U.S., eventually working with Time Incorporated and Sunset and writing hundreds of articles. Then she quit freelancing. This biography is amazing because there's a lot of then and and more and more. So she quit freelancing in 2006 to launch what became a 10-year successful corporate career as executive editor and editorial director of the Americas at Baby Center the leading digital global resource for parents. So if you're a parent, you might have heard of it. In the meantime, she also managed to squeeze in a personal life and got married, had a child, and traveled home regularly to see her family in Spain. She also published a book of short stories and an award-winning academic book. So we know Isidra has juggled priorities well and continues to. So then after 10 years in corporate life, she quit her plush corporate job to focus on her lifelong dream of being a creative writer. And since then, she's been widely published in literary journals and general interest magazines. So her career has been varied and winding, but it's always focused on words and stories, because stories help us bring meaning to the world. So today we'll be talking about Isidra's journey through life as a young woman who grew up under Franco, a repressive dictator, if you know your history, but also has this fascinating tale of coming of age as Spain was going through a massive cultural and political change, a renaissance really, and what happens when a young woman who grew up in a place where things like kissing in public was illegal finds herself suddenly free to explore whatever she wants in a beautiful bohemian port city that's full of people who are also discovering the world in a new way. So we'll talk about that because Isidra recently wrote Promenade of Desire, which has already become a book club favorite and garnered some awards. It narrates her journey from being the shy Maria Isidra as she experiments and evolves. And we'll talk about 
some taboo topics like the beauty of desire and the freedom that exploration has given Isidra herself in her life and now. And I can really relate to that. So we'll probably touch on the edges of my comfort zone as we go through this conversation. And I can't wait to talk about how being lustful and loved allowed her to learn to love her full self, because I think a lot of people listening can hopefully relate to that. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you sit here, Isidra. Welcome. Thank you so much, Betsy. I'm honored to be here at the Discomfort Practice. Well, you certainly have danced on the edge of discomfort. You've experienced it as a very young woman. You obviously continue to throw yourself out of your comfort zone as you've lived a very interesting life. So may there be many more phases to go. So what I suggested as we were sort of discussing back and forth, the focus of this episode B, I really like the idea of talking about how sensuality in particular has been a path to freedom and claiming your full self because that word even might be triggering to some people but I think it's one that it would be beautiful to sort of unpack and reclaim because it's just about the senses and being in touch with yourself isn't it so then kind of going back to at whatever stage of your life you want to start from and answering this question what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world I'm going to talk to you about two moments of discomfort, Betsy, because I want to give an example of a moment that was very negative and really marked my life, and then another one that was very positive, even if very uncomfortable. So the first one is when I was a child, um, I was perhaps 10 years old, something like that. I was once at home alone with my mother, and it was the middle of the day, and I went to her bedroom to ask her something, and I opened the door, and right as I opened the door, she was opening the door of her bathroom and coming out completely naked. I had never seen my mother naked. I hadn't even seen my sister naked, and we slept together for 15 years, <laughs> you know? It was, that, it was that era where it was so, you know, nudity was taboo. It was the Franco era, the dictatorship fascist era that was very repressive in everything related to the body. So my sister and I would put our nightgown on and then take our clothes off, and it was like Houdini, you know? <laughs> we could just disappear the clothes. So I came into the room, I saw my mother coming out naked, and when she saw me, she gave that yelp. <laughs> you know, like she was terrified and she covered her privates and her breast, and she yelled at me, you know, why did you come here without knocking on the door? She was so mad. That moment was incredibly uncomfortable, but also it really marked me because it came after uh, sexual trauma as a younger child at five years old and um, repression, sexual repression by my mother as well, uh, when I first discovered the sensuality of my own body. And it really marked me in a negative way in the sense that I got disconnected from my body. I got uh, associated my body, nudity, pleasure with shame and guilt. And it really it took me a long time to find a way back to my body, which is the journey that I explore in my memoir, Promenade of Desire. Um, so that was a moment that was uncomfortable. But again, at the same time, this everything has two sides, right? That discomfort also propelled me to be a seeker, to try always find the comfort zone in my own body. And, and that really marked my life. And a second moment that I might mention as a discomfort moment 
was when I moved to the U.S. And I'm sure you know all about this, Betsy, because you moved to Spain from the U.S. So when you move to a new place and you have to start from scratch, uh, everything is, is difficult. Everything is difficult. The cultural shock was incredible. Uh, I was unhappy. I didn't have any friends. Two months after I arrived in Berkeley, I had a stomach ulcer. That's how stressed out I was. But it ended up being, yeah, it was just so hard. You know, it was leaving everything you know behind, entering a, a, a place where you don't understand the culture. Um, it was hard. That said, it was the moment that started my ascent in life, both at a personal level and at a career level. I finally was able to forge a path that was uh, my own, that was a path that led to success in many different ways. So it was the best thing that ever happened to me that I did that move. So I think that oftentimes uh, looking and seeking change, it might bring you into a very messy moment of disorientation and confusion and feeling upset about not being who you were and not knowing where you're going. But in the end, it's that change that allows you to grow and to continue growing. So I do encourage people to not fear change, seek change. If, if you're thinking about something and you're scared, being in your fear is what's going to allow you to be, uh, to grow and to finally conquer fear to be brave right mm. it sounds it's such an easy sound bite but you've really lived it to seek change and probably a lot of people listening to this have never moved countries and I've done it five times Ooh. now <laughs> I mean, I'm still looking for home but it's it's actually not as scary as you make it in your mind is what I would say to people so I'd, I'd love to hear how it was when you decided to make that step? Was it just that you kind of threw yourself into this adventure that was moving to the US to do a PhD? Or did you worry about it? Or this, I think, will show a lot about your personality, but also perhaps encourage and inspire somebody who might be thinking about making a big move in their lives, whether it's literal, physical to another country or in a situation. What was your process like of deciding to move to the US? Well, you know, you're my 20s. I had a very unstable life. Uh, and you mentioned that, Betsy, that I was changing jobs to job, men to men, house to house. I was constantly changing things. Uh, however, it wasn't a change that was really driven by my own personal needs. It was a, it was a ch changes that were driven more by my uh, urge to find love. So in a way, I was adapting to whoever was my love at the time, right? So it's not the way to change. When you, when you want to seek change, I think it's important that you change from an inner purpose, something that you really want to do. So in the, at the end of that decade of the 20s, uh, feeling like if I continued on that path, I was going to end up crazy or dead because it was very uh, jarring. The, the, the things that happened and how I was constantly in a state of um, upheaval and, and crisis, I decided that I was going to go back to university and study and have a PhD. And I started in Barcelona, but at the time, I don't know how it is now, but at the time in Barcelona, 
the PhD was absolutely awful. It was just like the like the <laughs> BA, you know, you just sat in these huge rooms with a hundred people uh-huh. and the professor is out there reading from notes and there's no discussion. It was just the same thing all over again. And I had taken a 10 year gap working and I was disappointed when I went back to school and I didn't like it. At the time, I was dating a guy from the U.S., uh, coincidentally, and I told him, you know, I'm going to drop off. I don't like this. And he said, well, why don't you try for the U.S.? They have wonderful programs there. And I said, well, why not? I was just an adventurous spirit, right? So I was like, okay, let me Mm -hmm. apply. So I applied for like, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 universities, which I didn't know anything about. I just went to the North American Institute in Barcelona. I researched. I chose the best and I applied to all of them and I actually got accepted in many of them. Uh, I think because I had an unusual CV where I wasn't just a teacher, I had been working with publishing houses a lot and I got good reference letters from them. Anyway, I got accepted in many and I chose Berkeley because I had a friend who lived there and it sounded bohemian, you know, the 60s, etc. And I thought, that's right my, my alley, <laughs> down my alley. So I chose that, but it was kind of a, almost like a, an impulse. But in a way, that was the first time ever, Betsy, that I really had a goal that was my own, my own goal, which was to do this PhD in, in the U.S., and, and I took it like a business. I had to take the, the exams to get in the TOEFL and the et cetera. I just was mm-hmm. studying every day. I was like so focused. It was the first time in my life that I was fully focused on my own goal. First time in my life that I actually saved some money to go because I had never saved any money. Um, it just started a different path for me where I realized if you have a goal that is important to you and you focus, you're going to achieve it. It showed me my my drive and determination could really take me places. So that was how I ended up here. And um, yes, it was difficult, but it was also the best decision I ever took. It it was the the biggest, uh, most positive change. One of the biggest, most positive changes in my life was taking that decision to go and follow my own inner purpose for achieving something for myself, not for the man that I was Mm -hmm. with at the time. Which, by the way, that well, American think... boyfriend didn't come with me. We broke up before I came. Oh. So that had nothing to oh, do with irony. moving to the U.S. Wow. But I like that we sort of see under the surface of how how difficult it actually was. Because, you know, you started that story with how you had a stomach ulcer and no friends. Because I think that's also a really good thing to pull out for people who might really just subconsciously or consciously try to avoid big changes because they're afraid of what comes next. And neither of us would ever say that it's easy. What comes next is not necessarily easy. But then you look back six months, two years, five years, 10 years later, and you see that it was the making of you. And I think that's a really important thing. And also something that really came out of of that little tidbit from you was listening to yourself for the first time and connecting with yourself. Because when you've been programmed by culture and family and religion and sexual abuse to stop listening to yourself because it's not allowed or it's too painful. That must have been such a powerful moment that maybe you didn't even understand how powerful at the time to connect with what you really wanted and to feed that drive and to make something major happen. So 
it would be interesting to hear about sort of how you did connect with yourself because that's a, a lot of what your book is about, isn't it? It's how you found yourself. And a lot of that was through sensuality and sexual freedom and just freedom to do things that you'd never even thought you would, could do or should do, right? Just to remind people of the context, it would be really interesting to just hear about what was it like growing up in Franco, Spain? How repressive was it? Because I think a lot of people don't really, really know. They don't really comprehend it. And then what was the journey out of that? Right. Yes. I mean, Franco's regime, of course, was a fascist regime. And like any fascist regime, it was politically repressive, obviously. But the repression were way beyond the politics. I mean, especially for women, the repression was a, a lot, lot bigger than for men. And that even legally, it was like that. You know, for example, until 1975, which was the year Franco died, women had to uh, get, it was, was, this was called el permiso marital, the spousal uh, license or permission. They needed to get written permission from their husband or their father, if they were not married, to get a job, to open a bank account, to get a passport, etc. So it was really a, a very extreme repression. Sexually, you couldn't even kiss in public. They could throw you in jail for indecent behavior. In fact, that almost happened to me. It's a scene that uh, is in my in my memoir. Yeah. Um, it, it was a, a time where. Uh, the, the fascist regime was very closely allied with the Catholic Church, a very conservative, repressive Catholic Church, especially at the beginning of the dictatorship, the first 20 years. After that, it kind of split into more liberal, more, more conservative uh, church. But um, for example, just to give you an example, my actual name, official name is Maria Isidra, right? It's Isidra is my middle name, considered middle name in, in, in the US. But my whole, I have three sisters and they are all Maria something. So even the, cho the choice of baby names was regimented by the church because if you went with a baby girl in the 50s and 60s to try and give her a name that wasn't of the Virgin, then you had to add Maria in front. Otherwise they wouldn't baptize it. <laughs> they wouldn't baptize the baby. Yeah. So it was, just, it, it came into every corner of your life, that repression. In my case, coming from this repression at home, um, and then what I explained before, right, uh, also associating nudity with shame when I saw my mother naked, um, I had a very hard time just accepting my own body and my own pleasure. Then when I was 17, Franco died. I was in the first year of university. And all of a sudden, we went like in a matter of days to complete cultural, sexual freedom and experimentation. Oh, what was that like? <laughs> what happened? It was exhilarating. <laughs> it was exhilarating, but also confusing, mm. you know, because when you get all this freedom and you don't have any role models for what that means in a healthy way, you sometimes go to the other extreme and get into situations that are not the healthiest, which is something that happened to me. And in Spain, you know, it was a culture of, I would say the name that defines youth at the time, the first few years, you know, there was a lot of political activism, but after the democ democracy was settled, it was like, okay, now I'm just going to have fun because I have the freedom to have fun. So I think the adjective that defines that era for the youth was hedonism. Mm. 
is let's find pleasure, let's experiment with everything we didn't experiment with before. And that could be, you know, free love, uh, drugs, alcohol. It was like the hippie era arrived in Spain 15 years after it had arrived in the US, but it arrived overnight. So in my case, I did a lot of experimentation, especially sexually in terms mm -hmm. of having a lot of casual sex, but it wasn't really always positive or healthy. Mm -hmm. uh, I got into situations that weren't uh, very um, constructive, actually pretty destructive. I got into a couple of relationships with men that were emotionally abusive. Um, I was lost. I came from this family that had, it was a very large family. We were 10 kids, classic Spanish family of the Franco era where contraception was forbidden yeah. and abortion was forbidden yeah. and divorce was forbidden, you know, and you had to marry by the church. Otherwise the marriage didn't count, et cetera, et cetera, right? So yeah, so Franco did a lot of pro-natalist laws because the country was devastated from the war and exile and etc. And so families had a lot of kids, yeah. especially Catholic families, which was everybody at the time. Well, I can relate to this. So you weren't taught about sex, sex education other than don't do it. And, you know, exactly. you've probably run into this a bit or a lot in the U.S. where I'm from when you live, which is I, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian family. And that was the extent of our sex ed, which was just don't do it, don't think about it. And then someday you'll get married. And I have watched so many people I know and and have had my own experience with this of just nobody ever taught us how to drive that thing in our lives responsibly. And so, exactly. yeah, you, you, I mean, thank goodness you were young when you discovered it rather than like 30 or whatever, because yeah, you don't have an instinct for what's wise or how to do it responsibly or how much you actually need to do it wisely to keep yourself from getting hurt or damaged or abused because it's a powerful force sexuality and sensuality and it's it's beautiful but when you're taught to just not do it it's really hard to know how to how to be safe isn't it how to keep yourself emotionally safe and otherwise yeah exactly yes mm -hmm. and i had this dissociation from my body and i also had you know from that large family no intimacy whatsoever we were 10 siblings. None of us talked to each other. We were not friends. There was no confidences. It was like be, being in complete isolation within a very large group. So I was desperate for finding love and reconnecting to my body. And I took mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, I made a lot of bad decisions because I was like addicted to being loved. So I went from man to man to man, you know, I couldn't be alone. But the one thing that saved me and that reconnected me to my sensuality was dancing salsa. Take us there. <laughs> so there was only one club in Barcelona at the time, and now it's very popular there. But at the time, in the 80s, there was only one club in Barcelona. It was in the red light district in Calle Escudillers, for those of you who know Barcelona. And it was appropriately named Tabú. And when I discovered Taboo and the salsa scene, I just couldn't get out of there. I was there four, five, six nights a week, dancing until 5 a.m. And then after that, going to an after hours and dancing again. I just was crazy about it because for the first time, I discovered something that 
made me feel my sensuality as a place of absolute joy, no shame, no guilt, just a pure joy in my body, in what it could do, in how it could move, in how God, how could it communicate with another body in a very public, sensual, joyful way. So for me, that was really a huge step forward that allowed me to create a new persona. In fact, I even got a new name. My friends nicknamed me Isadora for Isadora Duncan, the dancer, because I love dancing salsa so much. And with that persona came, uh, with that new name came a new persona. It was this confident, sensual, seductive woman that had been completely transformed from that shy, insecure, uh, repressed, little Catholic virgin that I had been raised to be, right? So it was an amazing way of reconnecting my, with my sensuality. And I always tell people, if you suffer some kind of trauma, and especially if you suffer any kind of body trauma, sexual trauma, it's fine to do therapy, it's fine to do meditation, all of those things are going to help. But try to find a practice that is embodied as well. It can be dancing, it can be, I don't know, Tai Chi, whatever it is, or, you know, getting Reiki, but find a practice that is in your body. Don't be only in your mind, because otherwise you're not going to ever be fully yourself in all your power. Your power is not only in your mind, it's in your mind and in your body. So you need to recover your body and find a practice that is going to help you do that. For me, it was salsa dancing. Oh, what a beautiful sound bite. That might be the one for the episode because it's such a beautiful illustration of how healing it is to be embodied. And I think we've really lost that in our Western societies where we're taught to think and logic and do everything from our heads. And because I've I've taught yoga for eight years now as well, and just trying to get people to connect with how they feel in their bodies, because so much intelligence lies there and so much of ourselves lies there and so much of our instincts, the things that keep us safe and make us creative and help us to connect to other people lie in our bodies. And we've We've missed that. We've not been taught how to connect with that. So yeah, I agree. I love to dance for the same reason. In fact, I'm probably going to a dance class after we finish recording this. But it's so, it's a practice that brings me joy as well. So I hope to anybody listening to this, it maybe sparks a memory in you that remembers a time in your life. Maybe it was when you were a child. Maybe it's more recently when you had a a beautiful embodied practice of joy. It might be dancing or dancing with your children or just, I don't know, maybe it's lying still. Or like like you said, Isutra, Reiki or, or getting a massage or something. Or swimming, you know, it can be swimming where you feel free in the water. Just find that thing that makes you feel free, that makes you feel joyful in your body. Mm. That's super important. That also really illustrates what I was going to ask next, which is sort of how would we want to define sensuality for people? Because it's not just about being sexual. It's about what that leads you to, isn't it? So how would you describe, like, how would you define sensuality as we're talking about it? Well, I think that the, the name says it is living in your senses and through your senses. And as we were just saying, not just through your mind. Um, I think 
uh, sensuality for me, as you very well said, Betsy, is not only about sexuality. It's about, for example, food, you know, enjoying your food, really, really savoring your food. It's about enjoying nature. It's about being present in the moment. It's about not feeling shame for what your body needs or what your body craves and really you know appreciating just just one one practice that could help you understand what sensuality is is even doing like a five minute attention practice so you could take five minutes sit outdoors uh wherever in your garden in a busy street wherever it is in the be on the beach, wherever you are, just take a little notebook and just write a few sentences of what you're seeing, hearing, or tasting, or feeling in your skin, the breeze in your arms, whatever it is. Just don't put emotion, just write what you're feeling in your senses. And I think if you do that a few times, you know, like every day for a week or whatever, you're going to be a lot more aware of what your sensuality when appreciated and fully developed, can bring to you. Beautifully put. And also a lot of people who have that practice probably haven't really thought of it as a sensuality practice. It's We use terms like somatic movement or somatic practice or, you know, just connection. But it is a good reminder that actually sensuality is beautiful and natural and just about being in your senses. And I think this like leads quite nicely into a bit more of an edgy topic, which is about the freedom of claiming your your lust. We've talked about that, about your desire, but I think this is oh, this is a place that I would like to go because it might make some people uncomfortable, but it also might free the same people to not live with what's been prescribed to them, especially in right now we're seeing such an interesting building of a new paradigm as the old paradigm tries hard to hang on and keep us in our boxes and tell us what we can and cannot do and can and cannot think and can and cannot be. So I think it's super important to talk about things like desire and lust. I'd love to hear you talk about how lust led you to be able to be freely yourself, to really reclaim parts of yourself that I mean, as you've you've talked about having experienced sexual abuse early on and then obviously growing up in a fairly extreme repressive society and family lust was a gateway to something big that was about being fully yourself so for me lust was something that i needed to conquer uh, and it was an effort that it took me years because as i said because i grew up so repressed and disconnected from my own body for example even with self-pleasure, I found that I couldn't get there because this uh, barrier of shame would come in the middle and I wouldn't be able to absolutely let go, right? So when I started experimenting sexually after Franco died and there was more freedom, I became very rebellious at home. I was still living with my parents. I was 17, 18, 19. And I would just go out and not come back until the morning or whatever. Even like that, I had a bit of trouble. And then I finally found that first boyfriend with whom I had an amazing relationship sexually. 
and it opened up my mind. It was like, whoa, okay. So this is what this is about. And even then I had to kind of continue struggling with self-pleasure and really letting go and really not feeling shame and guilt about it. It was so ingrained in me as a child. I will say that I wasn't even to fully achieve this complete conquest of lust until I came to the US. I think it was the fact of separating myself from my family. And I love my family. I mean, I, I go see them every year, every couple of years. It's not about that. But I grew up with a matriarch that didn't allow opinions that were not like hers, that had repressed me sexually, that I had grown in this very conservative environment. And I think I needed to kind of pull away from that physically even to finally just be in my own body completely. And, and that for me, I'm not saying everybody needs to leave their country to, <laughs> to completely leave their lust. But for me, it was helpful. It was really helpful because all of a sudden I wasn't part of a family. I was, but my family was not in my everyday. I could be who I was. And coming here, that, that reached every part of my life. For example, one of the things that surprised me enormously when I came here and helped me a lot was starting my program, my PhD program, and realizing that at UC Berkeley, if I had a different opinion, I could say it and not only would be heard, it would be accepted. People wanted you to have your own opinions. The professor really wanted to have that discussion. And that to me was completely new because I was coming from a place where dissenting opinions were squashed, mm -hmm. uh, both at home and also at university, there wasn't that exchange. You know, it was just the teacher, a very authoritative figure. And we Spaniards were raised to never confront authority. And I came to the US and I realized that's BS. You know, <laughs> of course I can. I can confront authority. Of course I can have a different opinion. And I'm going to be heard and respected for it. And that, that part, you know, just recovering my voice went in parallel with recovering my lust in a completely free way. And it's strange because in Spain, I had a lot of sex and a lot of boyfriends and a lot of lovers. That's the journey of promenade of desire. But in the US, I actually had only one boyfriend and then I broke up and then my husband. Wow. And I've been with the same man for 28 years now. So when you are in that situation of stability, you need to keep working to awaken lust because when the relationship is so long, it can become a little stale. It can go through peaks and valleys uh, in every sense, including, you know, in, in intimately. And it is a conscious decision that you have to put intention into your lust, into your sex life and keep exploring it, even if it's just with one person. And so that's a journey that after 28 years, my husband and I are still on mm. and it can be done. It can be done. But uh, the main thing is just seeing your lust as a very uh, powerful and empowering part of yourself 
because when you live it and you live it without shame and guilt, you are fully connected with your body and your mind. You are one. And I think that is a wonderful experience. Oh, I love how you brought lust around to your beautiful long-term committed relationship. And it sort of made me think of you learn how to how to own it. And so you know how to turn it on when you need to turn it on, when it's actually very useful. And I guess through some of those trials and errors that you talked about when you were younger, it's all just part of the process of growing into something that you now find very useful. That's a beautiful way of illustrating how it's helped you to fully become yourself. Thank you. That was beautifully put. What a beautiful story. Thank you. And also, I mean, I I was nodding here at so much of what you were saying about the beautiful freedom that you discovered in discovering your own sexuality. And I think anyone who's grown up very strictly, strictly religious in a, a type of religion that doesn't allow, doesn't allow you to be yourself and definitely doesn't allow you to be sexual. Finding that freedom has been a very personal journey for me as well. And I'm a big advocate of, I call it militant sluttiness <laughs> because it's intentional and it's powerful and it's, yeah, it's, it's on my terms, you know, and, and it's been a very powerful force in my life. It's not something that I've talked about even on this podcast. So you're really bringing it out. But thank you for the opportunity to share that because those people who do know me well, know my story of somebody who's come from that, who's been divorced, who's been in several relationships and has really found my way into my queer identity for one thing and definitely lust and my sexual exploration have led me to really understanding myself so sort of parallel journey but of course as unique as we are as different people so I encourage anybody listening to this to just think about how lust can guide you to claiming yourself and maybe it's about following what you desire and believing yourself and honoring your desires they're coming from your essence they're coming from your core and whenever you say no to those things that are actually natural and maybe for you maybe you're closing down a part of yourself that the world really needs because at the end of the day it's all about you and your power and your ability and your permission to yourself to show up in the world that's kind of what struck me from this yes absolutely i love that you uh said the word permission mm. because that is so important you know to give yourself permission to be your full self and for that one of the most important things you're going to have to do is to accept yourself with your imperfections mm. we are not perfect and the only way that you're really going to be fully yourself is if you admit that accept that and love yourself with all your mistakes and imperfections um otherwise you will never completely embody your own self if you're trying to be that perfect person you're always going to be stressed out you're going to be anxious perfection doesn't exist just take yourself with who you are explore who you are understand who you are and love who you are with all those imperfections i think that's very important I think it was Jack Cornfield, meditation teacher, teacher who said that part of a spiritual life and perhaps the most important part of all is accepting yourself. And, and I think that's the journey we are on in life, you know, because 
as we grow up and when we are children, we have parts of ourselves beaten up out of ourselves. You know, uh, they tell us you are too loud or, you know, especially women, right? Calladita estás más bonita, you know? <laughs> They, 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 they tell us that we are too loud, that we are too uh, obnoxious, that we are this, that we are that. They don't want us in our power. So for us to really be fully ourselves, uh, we have to recover all those parts that were repressed, oppressed, beaten out of us and just bring them back up, bring them back in, into who we are, right? And, and for that, we have to also accept, okay, I'm I'm like this, but I'm also, these are the things that are not that great, or I made these mistakes, but this is who I am. And there's a humility in that acceptance that allows you to fully love yourself and accept your lust, your sensuality, your, your issues, everything. You are the whole package. And I've noticed on your Instagram, you've been doing a tour of book clubs, which is how you came to me, because... What that made me think of is also just a reminder that you don't have to do this alone. You can find company and people who they see you, they get you, they accept you, and that can embolden you in continuing your journey of claiming your desire, of claiming yourself. So in Barcelona in it was 2020, a lot of things, post-lockdowns, I started a sex book club because I wanted to read more things about sexuality, sensuality, women's power. And I knew a lot of other female friends in particular wanted to do the same. So I, I started this book club and it's still going, even though I'm no longer in Barcelona. And so that's how Isidra came to me through our mutual friend, Venus O'Hara, who is a very well-known sex toy blogger. She's amazing. She's basically the mistress of sensuality. We love her. But I noticed you've been you've been going to various book clubs with your your book Promenade of Desire which everybody needs to buy and read by the way and it must be beautiful to be doing this tour of meeting women who love your book want to celebrate it want to talk about it want to hear from you so I, I'd love to hear how it's going what you're finding as you talk to people about the book what people are getting out of it that's the best part of being a writer for me is connecting to readers right you mm -hmm. write to be read and to make sure that you're bringing something to their lives, that, that they're going to take something out of that book. What I found with the book clubs that I, they are inviting me in, uh, and I do some in person and also through Zoom virtually, I'm happy to do that as well, is that the first question everybody asks me is, how was I so brave to expose so much mm -hmm. of my life in this memoir? because it's, um, it's very raw. It's very raw in every sense. And um, I, I couldn't have written it otherwise. And I think that owning your story is it's, it's the, the part that makes you the most empowered. You know, when you own your story with all the good and the bad, it makes you feel like here I am world and this is who I am and I'm comfortable with that and if you don't accept me that's okay you know because not everybody's gonna like me or my book but I feel comfortable being extremely vulnerable but I think that's a a, a huge service to other because I think 
when people dare to share their most shameful stories and they realize the rest of the people listening or reading accept you for who you are is incredibly empowering. That's the, the first step to full self-acceptance, I think, owning your story. So that's been something that uh, I think people have taken a lot of inspiration with. And one of my readers, an 18-year-old girl, because I, I don't know, for some reason, I find that 18 to 28 love the, the book as well, It sent me this beautiful letter about the book. And she said, it inspired me to tell my own story because you are so honest and so raw. And the other thing that did is that I so much appreciated that you're not perfect in the book because I'm not perfect either. And I was so happy to hear that from this 18 year old because really that, I think this is very, very important. It's just to, to take yourself fully, accept who you are. And the other thing that people are very curious about, I mean, they love learning about Spain because the book has this parallel story, my story from repression to freedom at the same time that Spain is going from dictatorship to democracy. So it has these two lines going on. Um, so people love uh, learning about Spain. They, they talk a lot about that. And almost everybody is asking me, how did you finally <laughs> take this book? Or how did your son feel yeah. about the book? How did your husband feel about the book? <laughs> they, they get really kind of surprised about that, you know, that, that um, I have dared to put that out in the world uh, with my loved ones that could be hurt or shocked or, or surprised about it. But I am so much freer now that I have done that. It was worth it. It was worth oh, the risk. That's actually a beautiful reflection because I've thought about oh, if I ever write a, a memoir, I'm going to have to wait for a lot of people to die first. <laughs> but that's actually a really good encouragement of just, again, back to the power of owning yourself and being comfortable in yes. your own story. Because you you've illustrated so beautifully your own ability to write a powerful story and to own your story because... A story becomes our reality, doesn't it? And the remembering of it and the crafting of the words. And, and that's your reality that you're putting into the world and using to encourage others. And I also want to expand this to make sure that we're not just speaking to women here. You know, this is obviously relevant to men too and about owning your own desires and lust and sexuality because it's it's human, it's universal. So it's important to women and men. But obviously we're both looking at it through a very female lens right now as we talk about it but absolutely also important for men i agree i think that men especially men in spain in that era they were raised as ignorant as we women were about sex and a lot of the relationships that i had casual or with boyfriend weren't successful sexually because neither men nor women didn't know how to make them successful you know they, we didn't have any education so I think it's import, as important for men as for women, as you said, Betsy. And the other thing is men who grow up without a lot of uh, savvy or education in terms of sexuality or how to make a relationship work in that sense, uh, don't forget that it's all about communication. And it's through that communication without shame about your own desires is where you're going to get connection. Mm -hmm. 
get yourself into a salsa studio, it might help. <laughs> dance, is, dance is communication and connection without words, isn't it? I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful way to learn about connection and your body, no matter who you are. Absolutely. Just we've talked about so many potentially uncomfortable moments, but I think we're both storytellers and good conversationalists. So it's felt really unawkward, not uncomfortable at all. But what is some some kind of related discomfort that you wish others would experience because it might help them find their own freedom and sense of self? You know, what might people be avoiding as discomfort around lust or sexuality or their desires that actually you just want to say, you've got this push through, you will find yourself on the other side. I would like everybody to practice telling their most shameful moment to somebody else. I think that when you do that and then you get in response, somebody understanding you, the shame falls away. So I think that owning that story of shame, sharing it with somebody, even if it is with your partner, with a friend, whoever it is, it doesn't need, write, need to be writing a book. But if you own that moment of shame, you're going to realize that exposing it is what makes you human to somebody else. And they're going to relate to you in a way that you didn't expect. So don't be scared of sharing your moments of shame. And in terms of your sexuality and sensuality, don't be scared to speak up when you are with a partner about what you want, about what you need. Everything is allowed. If the other person is not up for that, that's okay. You know, it's, it's a dialogue, it's a negotiation, it's a connection, but just don't keep it inside. Put it out. You need that echo. You need that dialogue in order to fully find uh, the relationship that you want to have. Beautifully put. So then based on that, you might have summed it up perfectly, but is there any one final thought you'd like to leave listeners with? There is no shame on being who you are. There's no shame on being who you are. Just uh, own everything you are and share it with the world. What makes you imperfect is what makes you human. Your vulnerability is what is going to allow you to connect with others deeply. So don't be scared to see yourself, to own yourself, and to share yourself fully. Beautiful. You speak in soundbite, Isidra. You have been so easy to interview. Thank you so much for your time. And just the elegance. It was fun to dance with you. And I really appreciate your openness. It was very easy. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the discomfort practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. 
thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable. <laughs>